Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So last week, we began a series on radical look at a radical mission, and uh, we were talking about the problems with the strategy that we've adopted over the last couple decades of bigger, faster, louder. And at the end of that teaching last week, or near the end, I said at one point, you can't complain if you wish things were bigger. And then I said, actually, you can. You can say to me, I wish we were bigger, and then I will say why, and you'll have to explain it to me. And then I got home, and my wife said to me, I want us to be bigger. And I said, oh, And she said, that's not what you're supposed to say. (laughs) And I said, oh, why? And she explained. And the first thing I just want to say is it's really nice to know that after 32 years, she's still listening when I'm talking. (laughs) No, what she actually said was really good. She said, I want us to be bigger because I really love our group and I love what happens in our group. And there's a lot of people that really could benefit from that. And I just want more and more people to benefit from that. And of course, that's true. And, and of course, when I say that, that bigger is not our strategy or our goal, it doesn't actually mean that I want the church to shrink or I don't, don't want more numbers in the church in general or even in focus. I mean, you could also ask, isn't 2.2 billion bigger than 11, which was what we talked about has happened over the 2,000 years. And yes, it's much bigger. So we're not actually saying it's bad that more people have been added. That's not really my concern, obviously. In fact... I want to be, uh, I would love to go from 35% of the world knowing and following Christ to 100%. And that is quite literally as big as we can get. And I'll even add to that. I'll add to that that in practical terms, what I've seen as a pastor is that bigger is often better for morale. That bigger is often better financially. And that bigger is usually more fun for the teacher. So those are all things that are true. So what do we mean by smaller? What are we really getting at? When I say that we need to be smaller and we need to disciple smaller, if I'm not talking about actually limiting the number of people that we disciple or, or trying to actually have fewer people in the church worldwide or even in ours, the truth is I would have no problem if Focus Church had 100,000 people in it. And the reality is, I think that because we're going smaller, and we'll explain this as we go forward, I think the possibility of having 100,000 people is actually even greater than it would be in a megachurch which tried to disciple 100,000 people with traditional methods. So I do mean something relevant about smaller. So that's what today is about. Today, we're just talking about smaller. When we say our strategy is smaller, slower, softer, what do we mean by smaller? And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And that's what we're going to, going to see what we mean. And we're going to start by just talking about two stories in Scripture where God actually works actively to be small, to work through small. And what's interesting is, as I began to look at the Scriptures and look through these ideas, I wanted to find some good examples where God is not just incidentally smaller or settling for smaller, but is actively making things smaller for His purposes. And what I realized as I looked through scripture for those is not that they were hard to find, but in fact, the difficulty I had was choosing which ones I wanted to share. 
because it happens so frequently. So I'm just going to share two stories. I'm going to share probably the most famous stories that have to do with smaller. And we're going to read through them without a lot of comment. And I just want you to see the reality that there are moments where God says, at least moments, where God says, I only want to work through smaller. Because if there's even a time where he wants to do that, then it's reasonable to ask why. And why, when that might, might that be appropriate? And might that be true of his church in general? Which is a big, a big question because it will affect our strategy. Before we look into these two stories, I'll give you a chance if you want to, if you have your Bible and you want to look it up. The first one is in Judges 7. And it says 1 through 3. I'm going to read more than that. That's just what's going to be on the screen. So if you want to pull up Judges 7, you can. Actually, it's Judges 6 and 7, to be honest. And before we do that, let's pray. And then we'll jump in and read this story. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together. We thank you for all the people that are here. And we do pray that there would just be more and more people that would be blessed by the, 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 the opportunity on Sunday nights to, to gather together, to, to worship together, to listen to your, your teachings and, and engage in scripture together. Lord, we don't want to limit that. We do not want to be gatekeepers that stay small for some weird artificial sense of small. But I do pray that tonight you would really impress us with how far off we are in our ideas of bigger being better and why it might in fact be good for us to think of discipleship smaller. Lead us tonight. Take us where you want us to go. And these things we pray in your son's name. Amen. It says the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites because the power of Midian was so oppressive the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain cliffs, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites they cried out to the Lord for help. We see this story. We see a moment where the Israelites are being overrun by bigger, aren't they? By bigger numbers. Numbers so big they're described as locusts. So big that they're just ravaging the crops and the cattle and anything that the Israelites have. They are just coming in and taking it all. I mean, it's really, uh, if any of you have seen Bugs Life, there's a callback to a very old Pixar movie. If you've ever seen Bugs Life, you remember the grasshoppers come in every time that the ants start to to, to wait. Yeah, the ants. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sorry. I wanted to make sure I had the right insects here for a moment. Every time the ants started to reap a harvest, the grasshoppers would come in and steal it all from them. That's what this is. Every time the Israelites start to harvest, the Midianites come in and just take it all and wipe them out. And they're overrun by huge numbers. For the record, the guess is that the Midianite army is about 132,000 people. There's reason to assume that based upon other things we read going forward in this story. It's a big army. It's a very big army. So the, the Israelites, they cry out to God because they're being overwhelmed. 
And it says, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hands of all your oppressors. I drove them out and I gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. God says, the reason this has happened is because they told you not to worship their God. And now you're worshiping their God. And now they're overrunning you. And the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Just so you don't gloss over that line. Gideon is hiding and he's hiding the wheat. Why? Because the Midianites, Midianites keep stealing all their crop. So he's threshing the wheat in a weird place. That is in a wine press. It's interesting for a couple of reasons. It tells us that Gideon is just hiding and protecting all the wheat he can. The fact that he's using a wine press might also be reminding us they don't have need for a wine press right now because they also don't have those crops. <laughs> so here he is just hiding and threshing. And it says, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So you do have to picture this moment. You have to picture that Gideon is just a farmer and he's a cowering hiding farmer and the angel calls him a mighty warrior. Already there's a disconnect between what God is seeing and what is happening. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Gideon says, why aren't you sending someone? And God says, I'm sending you. And Gideon thinks that's the dumbest plan ever. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest, read smallest, in Manasseh, and I am the least, read smallest, in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. So what happens next in the story, we're not going to read, but I'm just going to tell you, Gideon, I think very reasonably, and I don't think scripture rebukes him for this. Gideon very reasonably says, God, you got to give me some proof that I'm not nuts. Because you just ask me, (laughs) not a warrior, not from a big clan, not a big guy. You just asked me to save all of Israel and promised me that all the Midianites would be wiped out. That's all well and good, God. But what if it's not you? What if I'm just deluded? What if I'm just prideful? What if I'm just hearing things? I don't think it's at all unreasonable that the next several paragraphs are Gideon asking not just for one sign, but many signs. Every time God gives a sign, he's like, okay, let's try harder. Let's up the ante. Which again, I don't think he's rebuked for. Sometimes we ask for signs and really we, we, we phrase it in the way that will give us what we want. And Gideon works really hard so that there's very little room for accidental coincidence for any of these signs because he really wants the confidence that God is behind this. And then we come to this. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. This is a weird moment. Gideon collects his little army. I guarantee you, He's collected, well, we know he's collected 32,000 people 
I guarantee you, he looks at his little army of 32,000 people and he looks at the 132,000 Midianite army, recognizes that 100,000 more than you is not a good ratio. And he's probably thinking, I don't have enough men. And God, the first thing God says to him when he comes with his little paltry group, he's afraid maybe even that God is going to say, this is all you got? God instead says, you have too many men. He says, I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me, which is kind of ridiculous. Even if 32,000 beat 132,000, that's pretty miraculous. But for God, it's not clear enough. He literally says to Gideon, you're too big. Not just I can work with it, but you're too big. I even can't do it. I even don't want to do it. I do not want to deliver Israel into your hands because you have too many people. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Now again, remember 32,000 soldiers, they know they're coming up against 132,000. What are the odds that some of them are really afraid? Apparently, a lot of them were really afraid. It says 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. I know how this works too. Think about this. I bet you it wasn't like 22,000 all took off right away. What happened is a few hundred went, there's no way we're going to win this. And they went home. And then a few other hundred went, well, they all went home. So they left. And then after a thousand had left, the, the 31,000 left are like, well, we're really, we're dropping like flies. And so another 5,000 left. And then when those 5,000 left, there's a few who were brave and they thought they could do it. But now they're down a significant percentage. So they leave and it just kind of keeps going and going until you're down to 10,000. And the real question to ask is what is wrong with these 10,000? <laughs> because everybody else said we can't win because bigger is better. And the smaller we get, the less likely we are to win because bigger is better. But the Lord said to Gideon, you ready for this? There are still too many men. Can you imagine Gideon and the 10,000 are like, what? I'm sure that at that moment, some of that 10,000 are like, well, that's fine. Send me away. Too many men. It says, take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you here. God says, I'll, I'll go ahead and decide who's going to be left. He says, if I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. And there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like a dog. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. Now, I want to be really clear because you can read the commentaries and it's fine. Some of them talk about how the fact that God weeded out to the bravest and most alert because they say that those who drank out of their hands were still looking for enemies. That could all be well and good, but that's not what the story says. Do you realize that? It doesn't say that God said, you have too many cowards and too many ill-prepared. It just says, you have too many. I think when it comes down to it, God didn't choose the 300 because of the way they drank. He chose the 300 because they were the smaller of the number. <laughs> Literally, that's what he tells us. You have too many men, so I'm going to eliminate those who drink the most common way. And we'll take it down to the tiniest fraction. And then he says to Gideon, with these 300 men, 
I will save you and give the Midianites into your, into your hands. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Even this is like a humorous moment. Can you imagine what it's like for 300 to try to take over the trumpets of 32,000? <laughs> How do they even do that? Yeah, everybody gets three trumpets. I mean, what, what, what is happening here? And provisions, I'm sure they're really happy, but can you imagine if they actually took all the provisions? They're really, they're really loading themselves down. I think the reality is there's no way they took all of the provisions and trumpets. The reality is probably some of them took them with them home, let's be honest. And that others they probably left by the side of the river because there's no way 300 men can carry all that. It's just not possible. Look at what's happened. Here's Gideon. Gideon did all these signs to make sure God was serious. And I think it's a good thing he did because now he's like, what are you doing? And those 300 men that are all standing there knowing that they are going to take on 132,000 Midianites. Again, I give them credit for sticking around, but really, truly my head says, what's wrong with them? Judges 6 and 7, you can read the rest of the story. I encourage you to do it if you haven't. It haven't. I'm not going to go through it all. Suffice it to say what happens next is Gideon asks, again, not unreasonably for another sign. <laughs> God, are you, are you sure that this is you? Because this is not smart. Everybody knows when it comes to warfare, bigger is better. I've played risk. I know that's true. You don't take an army of 300 in risk against an army of 132,000. You lose. But suffice it also to say that what ends up happening is those 301, we'll add Gideon into that, those 301 actually end up defeating all 132,000 Midianites in an improbable way. But it happens. And they all die. And what God told Gideon happened is what happened. And the weird thing about this story is that God chose to do this with an incredibly unrealistically small number. And the question is why? God's already answered it, so you probably have some thoughts. But just hold that thought and just recognize this is one example of many in Scripture where God chooses to do His work through small, where He says, while you think bigger is better, I personally think, says God, smaller is better. Now let's look at another story. This is in 1 Samuel, verse, uh, chapter 17. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. And the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So this is describing a battle that hasn't yet begun. The Philistines are, have been fighting against Saul and the Israelites for, for territory for a while. This is part of Saul's big mission is to push the Philistines back to claim the territory for the Israelites that God has said they should have. And the Philistines keep wanting to take more territory. So they're, they're constantly at war during Saul's kingdom and, and often during the next king's reign as well, although he eventually does root them out. But what happens at this point is you have sort of this classic movie scenario where there's a valley in the middle and you've got one army on one mountain and another army on the other mountain across that valley. And it's a little bit of a stalemate. Because to get to the other mountain, you have to go into the valley. And whoever goes into the valley first loses, right? Because then the other, the other team, the other team, the other army has the upper hand, literally. And they just can kind of rain down terror upon you. So they're kind of in a stalemate. 
Nobody wants to enter into the valley. And so this is what happens. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Just to give you an idea, that's nine feet, six inches tall. Nine feet, six inches tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's 136 pounds. His armor weighs as much as some of you. 136 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back and his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, 12, 13 pounds, somewhere in that range. And his shield bearer went ahead of him. I, this, this, this acknowledgement of shield bearer is kind of ridiculous because this, who, his shield bearer must just look like uh, Munchkin. And I'm wondering exactly what shields he's actually even capable of bearing for Goliath. <laughs> but nonetheless, that's what you do, right? So the shield bearer's up ahead. Here's this guy, nine foot six inches tall. The description of what he's wearing and how he makes him sound also very strong. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? See, here's the thing. It doesn't, it isn't clear, but it's about to be clear in a second. Goliath enters the valley. He goes where nobody wants to go because he's not afraid. And he enters the valley and then he's like, why is no, why are you not attacking? I'm down here. And you can tell that because his next line is he says, choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Actually, it's a great idea. Kind of minimizes the bloodshed. Goliath probably is looking out over the Israelites, not seeing anybody that's, you know, coming up to his waist. But it's, you know, we'll just fight and the winner takes all. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Instead of thinking, this is great, we don't all have to fight, they're just dismayed and terrified. Why? Because bigger is better. And Goliath is the biggest. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem and Judah. Now, Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah, and David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine army, Philistine army came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. So 40 days, Goliath keeps coming out and taunting and making this threat. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commanders of their units. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. So he sends David with a care package for the army. I'm not clear, and, it, and I can see why you wouldn't be clear, that Jesse or anybody who's not at the front lines even knows what's going on. They just assume there's a battle. They may not know about this whole Goliath thing. Makes a lot of sense. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So early in the morning, David left the flock in care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. So every day they go out and they shout their war cry and then nothing happens because they're afraid of Goliath. 
Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. And when the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. And now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. So we find out what's been happening over these 40 days. As Saul is like, look, anybody willing to take on Goliath, not me apparently, but anybody willing to take on Goliath. He had trees to sit under. Yeah, he had trees to sit under. Yes, if you know about Saul, that's what he spent most of his time doing. Any, anybody who is is willing to come out, you can marry my daughter, I'll give you a lot of wealth, and your whole family won't have to pay any taxes. It's a pretty good deal. David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? So they, the, the Bible's telling us that's what's been said about him, but David doesn't know that yet. So he asks, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David's like, this is so stupid. Why are you all standing back? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with them and he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You come down only to watch the battle. Okay, this is sibling stuff. Because they know why he came down. He brought them food. <laughs> but now they're like, oh, we're embarrassed in front of David. Because he's like, why, is, why are you guys not doing anything? And they're like, oh, your few sheep. You like that? I love that. What did you do with those few sheep? Like, it's his fault that they only have a few sheep. In fact, if they only have a few sheep, it should be less of a surprise that he was able to leave them. <laughs> but they're just mocking him. Your responsibilities are nothing. Now, what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? Yeah, sibling stuff. He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. And what David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, just for clarity, the chronology is a little confusing when you read through the first Samuel stories, but it appears that Saul already knows David at this point, that they already have a relationship that David in fact plays music for Saul already. He comes to him and plays music in his, in his tent to calm him when he's really agitated. So it's not completely surprising that Saul is having this conversation with David. Okay. Uh, when David was a report, Saul sent for him and David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go fight him. Look, uh, no one has to worry. I'll go do it. <laughs> Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. Translation, you're smaller. He's bigger. <laughs> but David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This does give us a picture of David we maybe didn't have before. He's, he's, his, when it says that he cares for sheep, he's also grabbing bears and lions by their manes. That's, that's, there's something impressive about that, I'll grant you. So I'm not saying he's weak. But it's also possible he's exaggerating maybe a tad. Could be. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defiled the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. The most important point here is that David shares that story, but then says, it's God who rescued me in those cases. And it's God who will rescue me again. It's not my own strength. I, it's almost like he's sharing it and marveling at it himself. He's like a lion came and ate it with stone. 
And I grabbed it by the hair and I killed it. Crazy. But that's what God does. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Okay, Saul has no better plan. That's really all this means. <laughs> right? I mean, David is willing and Saul's like, okay, you killed a bear. I guess that's the same. So go for it. Then, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. By the way, it's pretty clear that Saul is a tall man and David is not a tall man. He's not a shrimp, but he's not as tall as Saul. Uh, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. And he said, I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. I think it's pretty clear what's happening here. It's a horrible fit. She's like, this is not comfortable. I can't move freely. It's really restrictive. I don't even like the sword. I might use it later, but right now I don't need it. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. So he's just going just as he is. He didn't even try to make himself look bigger. Just small David. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. By the way, do you notice what else David doesn't have? A shield bearer. Or a shield. <laughs> He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Goliath's insulted. He's like, this is so stupid. He despises David, not because he's afraid, but because he's like, really? This mosquito is what you send? Am I a dog that you come at me with the sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said. I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. I love that too. It's like, I got rocks. You got sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Some pretty good trash talk here. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All these gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or the spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. It's like David knows, all I have to do is get Goliath, and we're, we're going we're to take you all. Which means David's also not fooled that they're going to honor their part of this agreement, which they never were going to. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. I love this too. All this story, the Israelites have been backing up every time Goliath yells at him. Here Goliath starts running towards him. Just little, little feisty David just runs right to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David, David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. We then find out he does then go get Saul's sword and cut off Goliath's head because he said he would. You know, promise is a promise. But why not Saul? Why not Eliab? Why not have God raise up a giant among the Israelites? See, the thing is, it doesn't matter to God. Big or small, God could supply it. 
It's not like Gideon, it's not like God had to have Gideon win with 300 men because he couldn't get more. God could have arranged for 138,000 to fight against the 132,000. It's not like God had to use David because David was the best he could get. He could have arranged for their own 10 foot tall giant if that's what God so wanted to do. Why in each of these cases does he choose small? Why does he make a point of choosing small? Why does he make it such a big deal that he's going to take this idea that bigger is better, which so terrifies all the, all the people being fought by bigger, and say, you're wrong, smaller is better. Why in these moments is God actually reaching to make small happen? What is wrong with bigger? What's wrong with bigger? And, and let's be honest, you know, you look at armies and you think it makes a lot of sense. You look at armies, you look at combat, it makes sense to say bigger is better. Likewise, in our churches, we look at discipleship, we look at mega churches, and we look at a little church of 30 people, and our tendency is to think bigger is better. They're going to reach more people, obviously. But what is wrong with bigger? Why is God pushing a back against bigger? Number one, because bigger is a bad assessment, but it's an almost irresistible one. Right? When you assess the Midianites and you say, who's going to win between the Midianites and the, uh, and the Israelites? And it's 132,000 to 300. You assess by the size, don't you? And you say, that seems like they're going to win. But God seems to want to say, that's a bad assessment. God says, you, Gideon, think that you need a lot of people. But I want to tell you, that's not what you need to win. It's not what's needed. So assessing by your size, whether you'll succeed or not, it makes so much sense intuitively. And in this case, your intuition is 100% wrong. People looked at Goliath and said, he's so big. There's no way anybody can beat him. It turns out, even if you look at the story of David and Goliath, David didn't do anything that improbable or weird. But if you think about it, there's no reason a bigger person isn't as vulnerable to a stone in the temple as a smaller person. Turns out they are. And maybe the bigger target's helpful. So the assessment was wrong. The assessment was bad but it's almost irresistible. It's so hard for us not to look at bigger churches and assume that their chances of succeeding in this mission of discipleship are better. It's so hard not to look at smaller churches and assume that the smaller church is failing in its assessment. Bigger sometimes makes us think we've already won when we haven't. I bet the Midianites thought they'd already won. I bet Goliath thought he'd already won. In the church, we tend to assume discipleship is happening if there's a lot of people. But what's interesting is all the data, and we now have decades of data, and all sorts of other ways to assess the reality of discipleship. And all the data is showing us that this idea, this correlation between bigger churches and discipleship happening is just not there. There seems to be really no correlation between a church having a lot of members and the idea that it's actually discipling those members. Back at Lifesong, I had uh, one of the members of church uh, of our church of Lifesong, an older gentleman, really good, good man, solid, encouraging, was very excited to join us when we first started, was really important in a lot of the decisions we made. He was kind of a leader. He was just a good guy and, and he was really solid and and he was part of a small group and that small group was doing really well. And 
And, and one day he came to me and he said, we're leaving the church. My wife and I have decided to leave. And I was surprised. And I said, why? And he said, I said, what, what are the issues? What are the concerns? And he said, I don't really have any. And I said, well, do you feel like you're not being discipled because we can figure out what's going on? No, he said, he said, no, I actually feel like I am being discipled. I said, do you feel like you're not able to serve and disciple others? And he said, no, no, I get to do that in my group. I said, is your group not going well? I thought it was going well. He said, actually, our group's going really well. I said, so why? And he said these words to me. He said, our Sunday morning attendance is shrinking and our church is not growing. And as the pastor, you should know how to fix that. And you don't. And so I need to go somewhere where someone knows how to add numbers to the body. That's actually the way a lot of us think. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with the church, but it's just not bigger. It's just not happening. One of the reasons we closed LifeSong was because morale was low, not because people weren't enjoying their groups, they were, but because they thought just like that. They said, the Sunday morning isn't growing, and so something must be wrong. And no matter how often we said to them, how are you doing? They still would say, yeah, but we're not bigger, therefore we're not better. Discipleship simply must not be happening if attendance on Sunday morning or Sunday night is not increasing. That is absolutely the way a lot of us think. Number two, bigger makes us feel stronger with less need for God. This is clear. This is why God says he wants to limit the number of the army and get in. He says, I cannot win with this size army because 32,000 is even enough that you will feel like the reason you won is because you had 32,000 people. It should be clear that 32,000 against 132,000 still needs some supernatural help, but God says it's still too many. And you got to admit, whittling them down to 300 sends a really clear message. Bigger makes us feel stronger with less need for God. The reality is churches with a lot of people can absorb losses better. People can leave a church with 10,000 and it doesn't send ripples through the church the way it does if your church is only 75. Churches with 10,000 are financially more stable. They have a lot more resources and options, things they can do. Churches with 10,000 on a Sunday morning can always point to reasons for morale. When someone complains about the church, they can say, but look. Churches with 10,000 are applauded by other churches and the organization of which they're a part. Because people think they're bigger, therefore they must be succeeding more at the mission. The truth is, churches with 10,000 are often more sustainable. But guess what? Our mission isn't sustainability. Our mission isn't financial stability. Our mission isn't absorbing the losses of people who don't come. Our mission isn't even morale. I'm becoming convinced, you know, 6,000 churches a year close right now. That's the number. That's the number. 6,000 churches every year close. Most of them small. But I'm becoming convinced, more and more convinced, that a lot of those churches don't close because they actually have to. 
I'm becoming more convinced a lot of those churches don't close because they actually aren't sustainable. They close because the pastor is convinced he's failing. He's convinced he's already failed. And why does he think he's failed? Not because discipleship isn't happening in his church. He may very well know that discipleship is happening. He might be able to point to the changed lives and the people who are following Jesus who weren't before. But he can also point to the fact that he can't seem to get more than 50 or 60 people in his congregation. And everybody from the culture outside to his own congregation to the leaders of his denomination keep telling him, if you can't get more than 50, you're failing. But here's what I want you to think about. What if we're wrong about this? If we're wrong, if it turns out that the data that we're seeing now is right and that bigger mega churches are not necessarily discipling better. I lost connection. It'll come back. If in fact it turns out. Sorry. No, go the other way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Correct. No, but here's the point I want to make. What if it, tur- if it turns out, in fact, that bigger churches are not necessarily discipling and smaller churches are not necessarily failing? I want you to notice the system we've now got set up in our country with 6,000 churches closing because you know what we've discovered about the people in those churches? Guess where they go? To bigger churches. When someone is in a church which closes church plant or a smaller church, they're tired and they feel discouraged and they don't want to go to another small church, which might close again. And so they go to a mega church. And we now realize this is not an exaggeration. We now realize the primary flow of attendance into a mega church, which causes it to increase is not the neighborhood around it. It's not the lost people they're saving. It's all the small churches that closed around them. I'm not exaggerating. The data tells us for most mega churches, that is the primary source of their growth, which means this incredibly sad fact. If we're right, if what I'm telling you is possibly true, that these smaller churches are not failing just because they're smaller, it means that what we're doing is we're closing successful churches and sending the people from those churches to less successful churches. (laughs) And all because we think, Bigger is better. And finally, bigger teaches us to see God only in bigger. When we think that God only works in ways that are big and, and amazing, and, and, and yes, should we rejoice when, when, when 3,000 people get saved at a Billy Graham crusade? which is never going to happen again, by the way, in case you haven't figured that out because he's no longer with us. But any crusade, when we see 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 people saved, should we rejoice? Of course we should. I'm not saying you should scorn that and say, well, that's just bigger, that's no good. No, we should celebrate that that's happening. And sometimes God moves in really big ways. I talked about the Jesus revolution last week. God moved in big ways in the 70s and 80s, things that looked bigger and better. But if we only see God in the bigger, if we think that God is always bigger, I think we miss the vast majority of the ways and times that God is working. Because every time a soul is saved, God has done a miracle. And every time a life is changed, God has done a miracle. We scorn the supernatural anointing of our own spiritual gifts because they're not big enough. 
Billy Graham's spiritual gift led to thousands of people getting saved at once. Your spiritual gift leads to someone feeling more comfortable when they come to your house and you say, where's God? Guess what? He's in both. He is absolutely, genuinely, legitimately in both. In fact, I'll just say this, Paul, we, you know, we tend to think that God only works through big things and bigger ways. So we look at even Paul, the apostle, and we learn that Paul was a very smart, very dedicated, very zealous, very uh, legalistically righteous man. And our tendency is to say, it's no wonder that Paul was so successful as an apostle because he had all those gifts and all those skills and all those talents. But if you actually read Paul's letters, he does not say that once. In fact, what Paul says is, all that was really bad. <laughs> he says, all these talents and all these things I brought with me were for naught. He says, you know why God works so mightily through me? Because I'm so weak and arrogant and sinful and stupid. Now, Paul's not just being demeaning. He also says that on most of the rest of us. He says, don't you realize that when you came to the gospel, you didn't come because you were smart and powerful. You came because you were foolish and weak. What the world sees as big and powerful and better, Paul says is not the case. It's fascinating to me that Paul's name is Saul. And he's clearly named because he comes from the same tribe. He's named after the king that we just read about, who was an important figure in Israel's history, turned out to be a bad king and even a bad man. <laughs> but he was really important in Israel's history. He was their first king. And so Saul is named after him, most likely. But then as Saul begins to, as he's converted and begins to minister, he begins, it doesn't tell us, there's no big thing made of it in scripture, but he just begins to be called Paul. And Paul is a Roman word, which means small. Literally means small. <laughs> and I think Paul was happy to adopt that name because that's how he saw himself. Psalm 33, 16 through 19 is a pretty good summary. It says this, no king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. I think you do this psalm and the psalmist a disservice if you read this with the churchy spiritual lenses we all put on when we read a psalm. Because you read it and you're like, yep, that's right. I think the psalmist wants you to read these first few verses and resist it. I think he wants you to read him and go, can that right be right? <laughs> what do you mean no king is saved by the size of his army? No king? No king? No king has ever been saved because his army was bigger than the opposing king? No king? What do you mean that no warrior escapes by his great strength? What about David? He turned out to be a mighty warrior. You're saying he never escaped because of his great strength? No warrior ever escaped by... Are you kidding me, David? That's just nonsense. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance? Well, Shakespeare puts it in the mouths of one of his important kings of history to say, my kingdom for a horse. That's how important a horse is. Nah, says the psalmist. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. See, the psalmist says, even for a king who appears to be saved by the strength of his army, guess what? Size doesn't matter to God. He can do it with or without that. Even the warrior who seems to escape by his great strength, the psalmist says, no, 
He escaped because God let him escape or God helped him escape. However you want to look at it. But it ain't because he was so strong. You read something like this and you think about our current condition and you do see, you do see that we are very reluctant to say, you know, no mega church is successful by the strength of its budget, by the size of its attendance. But that's what he says. We think bigger is better. It's ingrained in us. It appears that way so practically. I, got, I think we have to stop for a moment and look at all these verses and all these stories in scripture and say, God keeps pushing for smaller. Is he just dumb? And then I think we have to ask this really important question. Given the fact, the fact that the average size church in America has not significantly changed in the entire 300 years of our existence. 300, did I do that right? Close. Given the fact that the average size church in America has with a few, few outliers remained about 75. Given the fact that that has happened over and over and over, I think we have to at least ask, is God keeping churches smaller on purpose? That sounds weird, doesn't it? But no weirder than God keeping armies smaller on purpose. Is God keeping churches smaller, just like he wanted to use the smaller David and the smaller army from Gideon? Could be, because large shows of power and strength make it harder and harder for Christians to believe this verse. And if God didn't want Israel to think that their success was because of the number of armies, how much more would God want the church, the people in the church who are learning to lean on God, how much more would he want to prevent from them the confusion that the mission of discipleship is happening because of our strength, because of our numbers, because of our abilities, because of our gifts, because of our planning, because of our budgets? What if God wants to actually make that unlikely to be confused about? And what if we persist in being confused anyway? <laughs> what if we keep telling pastors of churches of 75, you're failing, and God is saying to them, you're right where I want you. The bottom line is discipleship. It's not about being bigger or smaller. I don't say smaller is better just because I have a bugaboo against bigger or because I don't have the ability to be bigger or whatever. It's because the bottom line is discipleship. And in our church, one of the things that we really believe is that one of the primary, most effective methods of discipleship is, is given to us by, by Paul in the book of Ephesians. He outlines what it ought to look like. And it appears to be the way the early church flourished. We see it in Acts 2.42. We see it in, in so many other letters from Paul and Peter and John and everyone. They seem to have an understanding of the way discipleship happened, which is very different from the way we do. They see it as, and you guys are all familiar with this, many to many. Not an area where one person disciples a large group of people or even a small group of people. Where it's not dependent on one person giving everything he's got to those people. Where it's not dependent on one kind of gift or skill being the magic tool of discipleship but where every single member of the church is given a supernatural gifting 
which they are given specifically for the purpose of building up the church, of discipling someone else, and where every member disciples every member, and where discipleship happens not from one to many, but from the many to the many. And what it turns out is if that is how discipleship happens, we discover that bigger gatherings are actually in opposition to many to many discipleship. You cannot do that in a group of 10,000. You can do one to many. You can encourage people. You can inspire. You can give vision. But 10,000 people cannot all at once disciple each other within a large gathering. But what's interesting is not only do bigger gatherings maybe in opposition to the most effective discipleship, but at the same time, they tend to monopolize most of the energy and resources of a church, the bigger gatherings. In other words, as I've spoken with a lot of pastors, they will all tell me, we believe that discipleship happens best in the small groups. And yet time after time after time, when they tell me that as we probe, it determines, I find out that all their energy as a pastor, all the energy of their leaders, the energy of most of their congregation, the money that they have that they can give to resources, the training that they provide for people to do their ministry, all happens for the larger gathering. There's a really simple question. You go to a church and you say, which is more important, small groups or the large gathering? And if they say small groups, you then say to them, how often do your small group leaders practice leading a group? And they say, that's silly, never. And then you say, how often does your worship team practice leading worship? And they say, at least once a week, maybe twice. I'm not opposed to the worship team practicing. (laughs) But why do we, why are our large gatherings such a drain on the resources and the energy? if we don't think that's where discipleship happens best. And that's what I mean when I say smaller is better. We have to put our energy and our resources towards smaller because the irresistible nature of assessing by bigger is already there because morale is already something we connect with being bigger because these feelings of power and strength that come from being bigger are already there. If we don't push back and fight hard and intentionally push for smaller then we'll just end up with larger gatherings that will be harmful to all our little attempts to disciple in smaller ways. So my commitment has always been, I'm not opposed to larger gatherings and I wouldn't hate it if someday there were thousands of people that I was speaking to because again, on a selfish level, that's a lot of fun. But I'm committed to this. Whatever happens with this larger gathering, I am always watching to make sure that it doesn't become a drain on our resources or a measure of our success. And the day we have more people on Sunday night than we have in our groups is the day we will stop doing Sunday night as often as we do. Because it will be the day we've lost our moorings and it will be the day we have to fight even harder to emphasize the smaller groups. So when I say I wouldn't mind if we have thousands in here, that's great as long as we've got tens of thousands in our groups. (laughs) I'm all good. Works for me. So we've talked about many to many a lot, so I'm not going to go into details about this. But we do believe it's the core of the church, and we believe that anything which disrupts this needs to be examined for its usefulness and purpose. If it gets in the way or drains the resources or the energy of the time from our ability to disciple each other in groups, we need to examine that. 
So what we do, we've heard it before, this is one of our core values. We seek to facilitate many-to-many discipleship, not merely discussion. And this can only happen in smaller communities which transcend meetings. When I talk about smaller communities which transcend meetings, here's part of what I'm talking about. It's interesting that we have our groups and we we, we do things in our groups where many-to-many discipleship happens, but if we're really facilitating it well, this will happen in even smaller ways than our groups. And sometimes we discount those smaller ways. So in other words, when two people from a group get together and they encourage each other and they share their gifts with each other, that's discipleship that's happening. That is not less sanctioned or less official than the focus groups. That's right down the alley of what we want to do. In fact, that should be happening if we're really facilitating discipleship in our groups. If it only happens in our meetings, we've simply trimmed down our our larger gathering to a smaller gathering and stopped there. We don't stop there. We want to encourage that with your families and your friends and and the people in your life that you understand that discipleship happens in even smaller ways than your group and that we applaud that and emphasize that and push for that. And for this to happen, we have to continually get smaller, not bigger. We needed to see, see discipleship as something which happens intimately, communally, yes, but not corporately, not large. So I want to wrap up with saying this. You are not immune. Just because you're in this church, and we've done, I think, a pretty good job of emphasizing smaller to the point where people are amazed when I tell them that we have, I don't even know what the numbers are, but it's conservatively, conservatively this. We have 12 times as many people in small groups as we have here on a Sunday night. When I tell people that, they're like, that's crazy. How do you do that? Well, we worked really hard. And we'll continue to do that. But just because you're in this group and just because we've emphasized smaller, I want you to know you're not immune to the pull of bigger. You may not feel a need to have a bigger gathering, and if not, that's great. And I think we've done a pretty good job of, of removing that from our estimate of morale, which is awesome. It was not easy to do. It's very intentional. But I want you to know you're not immune, and I want you to think about some of the ways, even in your group, that you might find yourself thinking in terms of bigger and watch out for it. Number one, do you understand your role in discipleship? If you attend your focus group and you primarily see yourself as a passive observer in the focus group, you are treating it just like a large gathering. And I want you to ask yourself, do you understand that the purpose and your role in discipleship is that you should be fed? Yes. And you should be engaged in being fed. Even that is not passive. But you should also be feeding. You should be discipling as you are discipled. And I'm not saying you'll do that every week. Some weeks you'll be more needy, and some weeks you'll be more needed. And this has been our mantra from the beginning. All of us are needy and needed. And if you're unbalanced one way or the other, consider intentionalizing a different direction. But you don't have to. Sometimes that's just the season. But what I do want to say is, one way we think of bigger being better is we tend to think in the group, it's not me. I'm not necessary. I'm too small. I'm just David. Or you try to put on someone else's armor and it doesn't fit. And you're like, because I can't wear this armor, I can't fight Goliath. And God says, just pick up your stones and run to the battle. <laughs> so I want you to think about that. If you, if you find yourself as just a passive observer in the group, you are still welcome and loved. And you can do that as long as you need to, to get your feet under you. But I want you to encourage you. I want to encourage you to ask yourself, what is your role in discipleship? Because you are one of the many. And you should be both needy and needed within that group. Number two, beware of assessments by size, even in your group. I know how it feels 
when you show up and no one else in your group is there? And you're like, we're falling apart. We're failing. Stop there. If you're failing, you might be failing, but it's not because there's nobody there that night. There might be nobody there that night because you're failing in other ways, but you cannot assess it by size. And I'm speaking to the leaders too, because I know how it feels when everybody cancels on you or everybody but one person cancels on you. And you're like, is it worth having that one person in a group? And I'm not telling you what you have to, maybe it is and maybe it isn't, but a lot of times I've seen a lot of our group leaders opt to meet with that one person and it's been a night of discipleship. So whether you're in the group or you're leading the group, be aware of that. Beware of the tendency that will still be in you to assess by size, by attendance, by weekly numbers. Ask yourself instead, what's the interaction outside of meetings? Is there any? And by the way, every one of our groups, the answer is yes, currently. I know it. There's WhatsApp, there's text, there's phone calls, there's emails, there's things happening in all of our groups that are interactions outside of the weekly meetings. There's actual contact with people we know. It happens. So when they're not there, ask yourself, yeah, but am I still connected to these people? Guess what you are. Does discipleship still happen even if the meeting didn't? Guess what? It can. Where's the care for each other? And then what does happen in the meetings? Is discipleship happening in the meetings? I think it is. Most of the time. The last thing I want to bring up is the difficulty with multiplication. And I'll make this quick because I don't want to hit this too hard, but I do think it's relevant. And I think we should think of this as a bigger is better temptation. So we have three times the number of groups that we had when we started. That's good. Some of those came because we just started another group. Some of them came because a group that we had multiplied into more than one group. And I know two things about every time we multiplied a group into more than one group. Every single time we did it, it was painful. And I, and I don't say that to diminish the pain. In fact, I think that we didn't do it well many times. <laughs> but every time we multiplied, it was painful. And I know that's true. And there's a degree to which that will always be true because I know that separation is painful. I think that separation is one of the aspects of the fall we don't consider enough. We, we think of it when we think of death. Death is the big separation. That's the one where it's permanent for now. I mean, permanent for now is an interesting phrase, but you know what I mean. It's permanent this side of heaven. Separation is very much longer. <laughs> but I think even little separations are hard. Friends move away. It's hard, right? We just, we grow distant from people. It's hard. Our kids move out. It's hard. Separation is hard. I think it's a beautiful thing to think that in heaven, there will be no such thing as separation. I don't know how it works because I don't know how physical space works, but my understanding is there will be no distance in heaven. As, as more, a songwriter I like says, heaven is a long hello. There will be no goodbyes. So some of it is that and that I can't fix. Paul would plant a church, stay with them three years, and they go plant another church. And when he wrote letters back to the first church, he invariably, inevitably always says, I am crying all the time when I think about you guys. <laughs> because I miss you. Because I labored with you. I connected with you. I was intimate with you for three years. And I miss you. But the beauty of Paul, if you think about it, he says that for every church, which means, yes, he's experiencing the pain of separation, but he's also experiencing the joy of multiplying those relationships. He has so many people that he loves and that love him. It's a beautiful thing. So I can't do much about the separation. I think any time we multiply, it's going to happen. Having said that, I do want to acknowledge, again, 
that sometimes our multiplication in the past has been mishandled by me. Now, I want to be clear. I've never forced a group to multiply, but sometimes I think it felt that way, but I never have. I've never told a group they have to multiply, and I never will, because I don't think that makes sense. But sometimes it's been more painful than it ought to have been, so I'm not diminishing that. Let me just acknowledge that. But I think there's another reason that we resist multiplication also, and this is what I want to address. Because that's fine. I understand the pain that's going to be there. We'll have to learn how to, what, what that means and how to learn from that and, and, and deal with that. And, and maybe even when that means we shouldn't multiply, all that. But sometimes we resist multiplication because multiplying means you go from a group of 20 to a group of six. And our head says going from bigger to smaller is bad. <laughs> But the reality is, if everything I've said is true, there comes a point, even in a small group, where many-to-many -many becomes impossible, or it becomes much harder. We did have a group at the beginning that was about 25 or 30 people, and they thought that everybody was equally invested, but I promise you they weren't. As someone able to look in, I saw that what had happened is people who were initially engaged suddenly were passive observers, and some of them stopped coming at all, or coming less frequently. And when that group multiplied, whether we did it well or poorly, what I can tell you is those people that stopped being engaged, re-engaged. They re-engaged because many to many made sense again. Because you could actually have everyone disciple everyone. Okay. And what tends to happen in a group that gets really large is it actually splits into smaller groups anyway. You just don't know it because geographically they haven't moved. You have a, a click over here and a click over there. And I'm not like horrendously anti-click like everybody is. I think it's okay to have more connection with some people than others, whatever. But, but you kinda, when you have it in a group, it kind of happens. You have this group over here and this group over here. And, and because you're all meeting together, you don't realize you're actually splitting into more groups. And why are you doing that? Because it makes sense for many to many to happen. All right. So here's what I want to tell you. And I want to give you some assurance. It's been several years since I've even suggested multiplication in any of our groups, nor do I think that any of our leaders are in a position where multiplication is necessary or really even a amazing. I mean, if they decide it's a good idea, it's up to them, but I'm not feeling like, oh, okay, we're too big. All our groups are reasonably small right now. So don't panic. I'm not telling you this because we're about to split you all up. But the second thing I want to say in that is I want to make a commitment to you because there is a bigger is better tendency that I have to fight, and that's more groups. Right? For me, having 20 groups sounds better than having six groups. When people ask me how my church is and I'm really pushing the groups and saying how good our groups is, our groups are, and then they say, how many groups do you have? I want to, I want to inflate the number. So I understand that's my own bigger is better tendency. More groups is not necessarily better. So I want to commit to you that I will work really hard not to push multiplication on any group because of my own bigger is better tendency. But what I want to ask you to do in return, or along with me in cooperation as we figure out what multiplication should look like, because I don't think we know yet. <laughs> as we figured out what I want to ask you to do is to work equally hard to fight against the urge to resist multiplication for the sake of your group being bigger. If we both will resist bigger is better, I think we'll figure it out. One thing I was thinking about is that maybe we can think of it like a family. You know, it's really interesting in families. We do not have this expectation that it's healthy, that as your kids grow up and get married, they stay in your house, right? We see families multiply. And it doesn't mean you haven't become really bonded and connected with the family. Of course you have. It doesn't mean that, that when your family goes from 
nine in a house like it is now for me to two or three in a house like it will be for me, it doesn't mean that that's a failure. In fact, we understand that's a success. We understand that as our kids grow up, that it's part of growth. It's part of life. It's part of healthiness that multiplication happens. And our kids grow out, and in most cases, they end up multiplying themselves. And then they have a family. And now, all of a sudden, we're nine families, or eight families, because we'll still be together. (laughs) And then, all of a sudden, we're eight families instead of one big one. But that's that's not failure. That's success. That's growth. That's multiplication of life. Life multiplies. But it also means that we still, as families, we get together reunions every now and then. We still stay connected to each other. We still love each other, and that's good. But the relationships do change, don't they? And they do shift. And I think if we can think of it that way a little bit, we'll recognize that there will be people in our groups who will grow up. That's the goal. And as they grow up, they may want to start their own family slash focus group. And that's good. That's not a loss. And they may want to take some people with them. And that's good. That's not a loss. But you know what I also think about that? If we think of it as a family, it also provides one more purpose for these large gatherings that I think is a really good one. And that's family reunion. It means that if people in your group go to another group and you don't see them and you say to me, as people do, I just never see those people anymore. I say, why don't you invite them to Sunday night and you both come. And I'll make this commitment. If that begins to happen, And we have a lot more people from different groups showing up. Because right now, most of the people on our Sunday nights come from one or two groups. (laughs) Which is fine. I don't care. But if we have a lot more people from various groups showing up, we will make sure that we carve out time on our Sunday night. I will preach shorter. I promise. And we will carve out time for you guys to connect. We'll turn off the mute on Zoom and we'll let you all speak to each other. That was actually one of our goals from the beginning. We just didn't have enough from various groups to make that make sense. So if you're worried about that, that's one thing that I want you to see. The purpose of our large gathering can be to maintain those connections with people who multiply. Bottom line is discipleship is smaller. And I want you to start settling into the idea that it's also slower and softer. And we'll talk about that in the next couple of weeks. I want to leave you with this verse. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. If you need an assessment to know if we're succeeding, assess by this. Are you needy and needed? Are you receiving gifts and giving gifts? Are you giving and receiving? And is Christ being glorified? Are we experiencing his power and love through each other? These are the assessments of discipleship. And if we never add one person to our midst, but this happens on a regular basis in our community, I don't see any way in the world you can call this a failure. I also would be surprised if other people wouldn't want to come. I also want you to think about this personally. Just leave you with this thought tonight. I want you to think about this personally. I also want you to remind yourself that when you personally are involved in smaller discipleship, like your family, your spouse, your friends, I want you to realize this is not lesser because it's smaller. And it's not lesser because it's organic and easy. See, sometimes people will say to me, I just don't disciple anybody. And I say, how about your kids? 
And they say, well, yeah, but they're just always there. Well, then that seems like a really good opportunity. I don't disciple anybody. Do you, do you give your, your gift to your wife? Do you give your gift to your husband? Well, yeah, but they're always there. That's just easy. Well, that doesn't make it lesser. <laughs> if you read the New Testament carefully, what you discover is that it is expected that discipleship flows through these kinds of organic relationships. And when we lift them out of those and say somehow it's better if it's an inorganic discipleship, I, that makes no sense. I don't know why we do that, but we do. So I want you to realize personally, you got your focus group, give, receive, disciple there. But as you're also discipling in smaller ways outside of your group, don't discount it. Understand that I, as focus church pastor, sanction and authorize that work as official focus church discipleship. If that's what you need to hear, I mean it. Obviously, I don't believe you need that from me. <laughs> I'm not the one who gave you the authority to do this. Who did? Jesus did. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, and as you go, make disciples. Well, as you're raising your kids, that's a good as you go. As you're hanging out with your friends, that's a good as you go. As you're working at your job, that's a good as you go. Most churches believe in the value of small groups at a focus church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.